Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kakauke. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Matthew Sweezy, who is the author of The Context Marketing Revolution and also a massive name uh, in the broader marketing space, works at Salesforce. Matthew, hello. Hey, good to be back, Marcus. Excellent. Matt, could you give us an introduction to your background and maybe 60 seconds on that so that we can position in people's minds why you have the right to be here? (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, well, I'll see if I can do that. Uh, So first off, starting with 60 seconds, let's just go back as far as I can in 60 seconds to when I was 12 and started my first company and made my first business cards for my grandfather's construction company called Old Man Construction. It's just been a topic (laughs) I've always been fascinated with, always been in love with since I was a child. Um, Started multiple businesses in the first when I was in like fifth grade. The last one I started was probably like uh, 10 years ago. It's a brewery in Atlanta. But I've done a lot in the marketing technology space. Uh, One of my other startups was a a very early pioneer in the lead arbitrage space. Lost a lot of money with that, shut it down, and then luckily went and started to work right away for a company called Pardot. So I was employee number 13 at a a startup. We then grew that up. Um, I wrote the first book on marketing automation and then have continued to focus on the future of marketing ever since joining the thought leadership teams at Exact Target, continuing thought leadership here at Salesforce, where really I focus on the future of marketing. So looking at it from a large macro standpoint, uh, from factors such as consumer behavior, behavioral economics, media, media theory, um, really kind of like looking at it and saying like, what do we need to think about? How do we need to think about this different? And what needs to change? So that's me in a nutshell. And hopefully that was 60 seconds. Excellent. Thank you. You're one of a handful of marketeers who I believe are really leading the way in terms of humanizing marketing and making it contextually relevant. Why is that so important in this current economy, which is full of noise and full of people blowing massive marketing budgets on utterly unproductive marketing? So it's extremely important. So let's take two steps back. The big main point of the book and and kind of the thing that I try to hang everything on is the reason why. So like, why do things need to change? Why do we need to talk about new ideas? Why aren't things working, right? Let's ask the question, why? And if you want to get really, really deep on this question, it comes down to one answer, which is called media theory. And so media theory starts off by this dude. I'm not going to get too nerdy and too deep, but you kind of need to understand this to understand the answer as to why. Media theory comes from Marsh McLuhan, who's known as Canada's greatest thinker. So what we look at is essentially media environments dictate human behavior. So think about it this way. Media is how we translate information. Well, when there's a lack of information, humans make decisions in very specific ways. So in that environment where there's a lack of information, we then leverage specific marketing games that are dictated or or designed for that specific environment. When that environment changes, those rules change. The environment changes, that idea of marketing and how we do it changes. And this is really the crux of what's happened. The only time we've actually shifted media environments has happened in 2009. And what really happened was with the rise of the internet, with the rise of social media, with the rise of mobile devices, consumers became the number one creators of content, the number one producers of noise, period, that happened in 2009. They will remain the largest creators of noise. The second largest creators of noise are their personal devices. And and just think about how powerful this media is to break through and motivate a human to take action. When you think about a Fitbit, a Fitbit can send you a notification, can send any human notification and get a human to do something they don't want to do, which is workout. 
and get him to do it right then and there. Like say, take 500 more steps to meet your goal. Just think about the power of that one message and then realize it was generated by a computer designed specifically for that individual. It's hyper-personal. It's never going to be seen by anybody else. And it gets them to do something that we could never get someone to do in any other way, shape, or form. So when we think about what is marketing and, and why is it failing and what must be doing differently, we first have to understand the media environment is different. So when I use the word context, it's not how do we take this old idea of marketing and make it contextual? It says, first, start with the understanding that consumers control the media environment. To be in context with them means you have to be in context with the modern media environment. We can get into what that means in a second. But it's not how do I take old ideas and make them relevant? It's how do I realize the world is completely different? That means I have to come up with a completely new game to play. I just can't take old games and renovate them for the new world. So that's kind of a ballpark idea of kind of what we're talking about when we talk about context in the future. I'm going to get in deep trouble for this. Whilst no one else may see that information, God knows they'll hear about it because my wife and my middle daughter have got their Apple Watches and the competition between the two of them and uh, the crowing over who wins is quite depressing to watch. It's very entertaining for about five minutes, but every day we're hearing about the red circles, green circles, blue circles, and all of that. So uh, I, I get that. So what I'm seeing, though, is old ideas have just become noisier. and I want to address that issue first because there are 4.2 quadrillion adverts served up on Google and Facebook that get one click or less, costing business $265 billion a year. It's all noise. It's all interruption. When we multiply that out with email and the fact that, you know, the get-through rates, I mean, people on uh, subscription lists are happy with a 1% response rate is just shocking because we're now talking billions and billions of emails every day. Then you've got the noise of interruption from telemarketing and you add all of that stuff up. It just strikes me that there is an overwhelm of pointless effort, wasted budget, resource tied up in highly unproductive activity that just frankly pisses people off. Why does that persist? Well, it persists for a couple of basic reasons. Number one is we have to realize those were games that were designed to be played and they were the correct games to be designed to, that were designed to be played in specific environments, right? So in the world with limited information, in the world prior, those were all solid methods, right? When the brands owned the media environments, they could pump out messages and there wasn't a lot of competing noise for those messages. So number one, it's, it's a historical holdover. And it's just, if you think about it, it's what we were taught, it's what we were trained. If you went to school for any of this, this is what you learned. You learned about mass advertising. You learned about how to do large market studies. You learned about how to create a campaign that runs for six months. Right? That's what we were trained to do. So with that understanding, it's understandable why people have a hard time giving it up because they think that's the truth. So here's the problem we run into. Marketing is not a truth, but people believe it to be true. So here's what I mean by this. Old truisms, such as sex sells, people will always be like, oh, but it's sexy, it sells, right? I got somebody to look at this. Well, the research actually says that, yes, you may get somebody to stop and look at an image that's titillating, but that does not mean they're going to make any connection to the brand. In fact, there's a very large study that looks at this over a course of 60 years of this type of method, and it finds that it actually has no impact to your brand whatsoever. There is no unaided recall that's going to go along with that. 
So yeah, people stop and look and, and look at your ad, but it's not doing what the thing that you think it's doing. So when we think of these truisms, we have to give them up. And you brought up Google ads, which brings up the truism of right message, right person, right time, which I believe is wrong because it's not about the message. It's about the context of the experience, right? So when people think about message, they think all I can, I can write the perfect line of copy to get any human to do the thing I want to do. And the answer is no, you can't, right? Because when we look at even how basic humans function in the modern environment, my favorite example is toothbrushes. So it's, it's a non traditional, non-considered purchase, right? We don't expect people to consider a toothbrush thing. All traditional methods of marketing of a toothbrush are one large scale brand advertisements to get you to know who Oral-B is. And you walk into your local corner store and you see a wall of toothbrushes. And then the second method is product packaging. We're going to make this product look sexy on the shelf. So it pops out. So you pick it up. But what we have to realize is going back to that thing I started with is a new media environment. People make decisions in new ways. So here's what we're finding is because everyone has a mobile device in their pocket, which is instantly connected to the internet, which gets them a trusted answer in 0.3 seconds, they are now using that to ask the question, what is the best toothbrush? Because they trust those answers more than they trust the branding on the television and the product packaging because they know that's their design to thwart their opinion. So they then rely on this. So what we're seeing is a 100% year over year growth for the search term best toothbrush, not best electric toothbrush, just best shitty old plastic toothbrush. And that search goes across four websites and lasts 70 seconds, right? So it's a different behavior. So that idea of all I've got to do is have the best copy at the right place, the right time to get a human to do what I want is another failed idea. Because if we look at this apex of this idea, it's Google AdWords to your point exactly. There's no better technology to put the right message in front of the right person at the exact right time and using artificial intelligence to improve that process to the extent it's possible. Like it's the apex of this theory. And let's go back to what Google did three years ago. You remember how there used to be ads on the right-hand side of a Google search page? They took them yeah. off. Why did they take them off? Well, there's two reasons why. Number one, they wanted to create a better experience. So it's the same on mobile as it was on desktop. Obviously, you don't have that screen space on mobile. Number one. Number two, and more importantly, they would have still done it if it was making them money but you know how low the engagements were on the right? They were 0.13%. The majority of all Google AdWords clicks were the top four, not on the right-hand side at all. So by them taking it off, they really didn't lose anything. But think about what we thought about. Of, oh my God, I'm there. I'm just going to convert. But the reality is, is 99.7% of the time, putting the right message and from the right person at the right time is not going to get them to take action. So we've got this noise. We've got an abundance of choice. We have customers, whether they're B2B or B2C, looking at what other people are saying. And so they're hunting for social proof. So in order to put together the right strategy and ensure that you are contextually relevant, what advice would you give to marketers in order to start off on the right foot and let go of all that um, history and that baggage? What do they need to do to start by being contextually relevant? They need to start by talking to their audience. That's the number one thing. It sounds like crazy. It sounds like, oh, but isn't everyone doing that? Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. You're actually suggesting marketing people speak to customers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and, surely they're going to, they'll be around your house with pitchforks and flames. 
Yeah. So, well, let's, let's talk about what this means because I think a lot of people would be saying, but aren't we doing that? And the answer is, well, if you're just setting up a market study of showing here's an ad I want to see, or what are your thoughts on this? Tell me it's out of context of the environment. That's not a natural representation. If you show an ad to 50 people and ask them what they think about it, it's really not really the best research. What I'm talking about is deeply understanding the consumer, deeply understanding who the persona is, deeply understanding the journey that they go through, deeply understanding where they're getting information, how they operate. So then you start to hear words that you're probably very familiar with, customer journey maps. These things must exist, personas, they must exist. And once we have those, we can then start to then take the next step and say, okay, we know how they make decisions. We know where they are going to make those decisions. And then the next question we ask is, how can we be in context in those moments? And that's really when we start to get to this idea of contextual marketing. It's not, how do I make an ad more contextual? It's how do I meet that buyer in that moment and solve for the value that they're actually looking for in that moment? And when we do that, we break through and build deep relationships. Okay, so we've listened to the voice of the customer. What's the next step? Because it, it strikes me that an awful lot of marketing is uh, invasive and there's not even a hint of permission involved. I mean, you can opt into a list, but you know, pop-ups. I cannot think of a single instance where I've cl intentionally clicked on a pop-up without being irritated by it. And email, e even though I've probably subscribed to 50 or 100 different email feeds, Normally, I'm giving them my Duff email address that I never look at. So they've just spent five, ten, twenty dollars to acquire a dead uh, email. And if I want to get more stuff from the same company, I just give them another another Duff email. So they're cannibalizing their marketing spend in order to interrupt people because they're not delivering the contextual value or the timely value that someone is looking for. So, yeah, so it, it just seems crazy. So the question is, what do we do next? And you hit the nail on the head. And when we go back to that media environment, what we must realize is that we no longer, and when I say we, brands, businesses, we no longer hold the, hold the monopoly. Consumers do. So the biggest flaw that marketers make is they think that they can just force messages onto the marketplace and get people to do what they want. And that's the problem. In this new world, consumers know they have the power. You need to just think about this one statistic. There are more people in the world with access to a cell phone than have access to clean drinking water or electricity. It's not just that there's more noise. It's that people can connect in new ways around the globe, right? And so when we start to think about this, we need to reframe this idea and you need to leave this podcast with these three words ringing in your head, with, not, on. Each time you go to do a campaign, you need to ask yourself, am I doing this with my market or am I forcing this on my market? And anyone that has children, can always tell you working with people is a whole lot better than just telling them what to do because that's how we get people to do what we want is to work with them. And that's the whole thing we have to understand is those methods back to the question earlier of why do we do the things the way we do them? Well, it's because we lived in a world where we owned the media, media monopoly. The foundations of marketing all were built in that environment and that's why it's so hard to give up. Okay, but this is all fine and dandy for consumer, but uh, our audience today mm -hmm. is business to business. How relevant is this in the business-to-business context? It doesn't matter if you're B2B. It doesn't matter if you're in India. It doesn't matter if you're in Siberia or the United States. We're talking about changes in media environments which affect, which affect all people. So let's just talk about B2B versus B2C real quickly for a second. Let's use some data. 
So how about this? So if we go and we talk to people, right, we do a big research study every year called the State of Marketing Report. Um, and we also do another one called the State of the Connected Customer. And so what we ask is we say, you know, how important are experiences to you as an individual? We also know if these people are B2B consumers, B2B buyers, we know their age demographic. And what we find is the following, 84% of B2C consumers, just general B2C consumers, say the experience a company creates is just as important as the product or service that they sell. 84% of general consumers, keep that in mind. Now, a lot of people push back on this and they say, well, you know what? That's, that's millennials. That's, that's the young kids. You know, that, that's my kids playing on their phone. That's not me. That's not the CEO. That's not the, the grandparents. That's not the older demographics. And they're actually wrong. Because when we look at the data, what we find is there's only a 12% delta between what a baby boomer will answer yes to and what a millennial will answer yes to. And these are questions such as, how do you feel about giving up personal data for better experiences? How do you feel about loyalty programs? How do you feel about your privacy and your data? When we ask these questions, there's only a 12% delta. So if 100% of millennials are like, yeah, let's do this, it's pretty likely that 88% of baby boomers are gonna say, let's do that too, right? Now let's flip this and say one other aspect of this. So it's not just age. Let's go to vertical, B2B versus B2C. Remember, it's 84% of general consumers. You know what that number is for B2B buyers? 84%? 89%. 89%. And remember that 84 is an average. So 89% of B2B buyers say the experience that a company creates is just as important as the product or service they sell. B2B buyers are more affected by experience. And you know why? There's more risk in their decision. So think about it. When we have a general consumer, they're buying a pair of socks. You buy a pair of socks and you get the wrong pair of socks, you're not going to lose your job. You're not going to have to worry about your financial income being affected. You're not going to have to worry about making a bad decision in your teammates. If you're a B2B buyer, there's an inherently a lot more risk with every decision. As a human, we mitigate risk. That's why when we look at the toothbrush example, that's why people are doing that. Because we can mitigate risk so easily, it's silly not to. And so when we start to think about this in the B2B world, they're asking more questions. Experiences matter to them more because going back to what we talked about last time, they just don't want the better experience. They want the better outcome. And whoever creates the better experience is most likely to be able to also produce the better outcome. So we need to realize this is not just a general consumer thing. B2B buyers care massively. So then let's flip this one other angle and say, show me an example of this in the B2B space. And I'll show you a phenomenal example in the B2B space. So take those words with, not on, think about B2B, and then think about this word marketing. And let's say through the lens of, we want to increase, here's the goal that we want to achieve. We want to increase lifetime customer value and build deeper relationships with our customers. What if that was our goal? How can we then fit that in with all the stuff that we're talking about? And then one of the best examples is Salesforce Trailhead. So if you're familiar with Trailhead, there's two sides. There is a learning management platform where anyone in the world can log on and learn all kinds of soft skills, both how to use Salesforce's products as well as just general things. I mean, we've got all kinds of programs from all kinds of thought leaders teaching all kinds of different topics. And then the other side of the platform is a question and answer forum where users can go in and they can ask questions of other users of how do you do this or how have you done that? And here's what we find. By doing this, by working with our marketplace, we have just created a community. We are the facilitators. We're not putting messages out. We're not forcing things on people. We're helping them achieve their goals of the moment. And those two goals are one, better personal outcomes, and two, better business outcomes. When we help people achieve those things, they help us achieve our goals. Our goal of greater lifetime customer value, customers that engage in this forum, spend twice as much and stay three times as long as customers. There is no marketing copy you can ever create 
to get that as a sustainable result. That's the big key thing we need to think about. Traditional marketing mentality is based on spikes and campaigns. I'm going to create this, throw it in the market. That, that went great. Now I've got to do another one, throw it into the market. We're talking about sustainable, scalable methods. And what we find is, again, a quarter of all people who are in that forum have also found new jobs. You want to talk about building a deeper brand and a deeper customer relationship? Help that person improve their personal life and find a new job. Total B2B example, and the results are once again, average order size twice the average order size of people not in this community, lifetime customer value three times greater than people not in this community. So when we think about these new ideas in this new world, that's what we need to think about. And it works for B2B and B2C. It's really interesting because uh, what I'm definitely seeing is a shift, a significant shift towards community. And in fact, this year, I'm working on building a community around this concept of sales a force for good, precisely because I fundamentally believe that not only can you build your own brand around uh, a community, but they do it for you. So that, you know, that and, and from and Marcus, hit pause, real, hit pause real quick. It's not just that they do it for you. When we talk about context of the modern media environment, that is the context. It's because the messages are coming from the people they want to hear the messages from. Hence, it is in context of what they want and their world around them. That's what we must understand is now that everyone can, that's where the trust is. And we as brands have to learn how to work with people to do exactly what you just said. And, and that's the key because um, it, I think historically, where certainly I've made this mistake and I've, what I've effectively done is I've created a following and that is not a community. That's me on broadcast and people like my content. But uh, what I've realized is there is so much more value in all of us learning together, sharing our experiences, sharing our concerns, and then helping to address those concerns collectively. One of the fundamental beliefs that I have is that your success, certainly in the future, is going to be dependent on your ability to collaborate. And one of the things that I'm absolutely adamant about is that we need to partner with our customers. We need to partner with our partners as well, instead of seeing them as a get out of sales free card, as a free resource to use and abuse. Because actually, collectively, we come up with much better outcomes for the customer, which means that their experience is better and you help them personally and in their career and in their business. And Marcus, let me give you the best case study in the world to validate your point. And this is in the book, and this is one of my favorites. And we can also talk about this. Mark um, has put some stuff out recently that kind of talks about this moving forward. But think about this case study. The number one luxury car manufacturer in the world, as of 2017, no longer the number one luxury car manufacturer in the world. In fact, there's a new vendor who is. Let's, let's talk about that story. It's Tesla versus Mercedes-Benz. So here's what happens. 2017. Inside the domestic United States, these are numbers from domestic U.S. sales. What happens is the Mercedes, we're going to look at the C-Class compared to the Model 3. These are the two most comparable models in terms of market and price. Now, Mercedes has a go-to-market model, meaning marketing means the following thing. They build a car. Marketing then tells the world about the car to drive demand for that car, right? It's an on method. And then they sell that car. So they build a car, they market the car, they sell the car. 
Now, their average advertising cost per unit sold was $926 in 2017. Now, how many cars did they sell for that? Well, they sold 86,000 units inside the United States. Not too bad, right? Actually, pretty good. And remember, at this time, they're the number one luxury car manufacturer in the world. But then let's look at Tesla, same year. Tesla's go-to-market model is actually very different. They start by having a conversation with the marketplace about how do we get the world off of fossil fuels? They then work with the market to fund the building and they pre-sell. Then they build. So they've marketed this thing by a conversation. They've asked for commitment and to do it together. Then they go build the car. Then they continue to market to the most amazing customer experience everybody's ever known. Totally different idea of marketing. In fact, Tesla doesn't even have a CMO. Now, what's the average advertising cost per unit sold for Tesla in 2017? Zero. Six. $6. That's 1 150th of Mercedes-Benz advertising spend. Now, the question is cool. They spend a whole lot less, but what did they get for that? You know how many cars they sold that year, Marcus? Just take a guess. Uh, 100,000? 276,000. That's three times as many at 1 150th of the cost. And the surprising part, Marcus, the product didn't even exist at that time. Just think about that. Think about that brief if you're an advertiser. We want to sell three times as many cars at 1 150th of the cost. And by the way, the product doesn't exist. Go. And remember, we talked about the with method. They worked with the marketplace to do this. And that's how they broke through. Now they are the number one luxury car manufacturer in the world. Well, your classic advertising message is uh, metal engine price. And that conversation never happened with Tesla. There is no That's engine. not what they sell. Yeah. There is no engine, first of all. I'm guessing but there's a fair amount of fiberglass. And uh, price, it was almost academic. Yeah. Totally different. So, totally different. So if we then dig deeper, you've talked about community, which is fantastic. But what I'd also like to dig into is the whole context of permission. I genuinely feel that way too much marketing, particularly when it comes to B2B, is almost the expectation that they um, they have a right to torment people and fill their inboxes with this uh, noise and drivel uh, yeah. about their tediously boring products. Do you uh, want to talk about the past, the future, or current state of this one? Because there's a lot we can cover on permission. Well, let, let's talk about current and future. Because right. past is past and there's nothing we can do about it. Cool. So agreed. Permission is the number one thing. And here's what we need to think about currently, right? Everyone read 1999, Seth Godin, Permission Marketing. That's why we all use forms and that's why we use content marketing, right? Let's just go with that. What we have to realize now is permission is the key to personal data. And moving forward, we are about to move into the post-cookie world, which means if you don't have personal data, first-party data, you're not going to be able to do omni-channel experiences. First-party data is going to be the key to operating inside of walled gardens. First-party data is going to be the key to creating better experiences. And the only way you're going to get first-party data is via permission. And then you have to think about this one step further. What's going to be different in the future? Consumers are going to have greater control. I fully believe we're only a few years away from a flip of the market where the consumers have a digital wallet where they log onto your website and they automatically share their personal data with you without having to tell you I'm okay with the cookies. It's already going to be all set. It's going to be a digital handshake that happens behind the scenes. And that's automatically going to share that data. You know what's not going to be shared? Data if you don't have their permission. 
we must realize that you now have to get permission and then you have to be sensitive with that because if you're not, you're going to lose that permission. If you lose that permission, you lose all of the power in the future of omni-channel, of all those things that we've always had. We've had a resource that we didn't have to manage. There was no recourse for us being bad. There was no recourse currently still. Someone might unsubscribe, but unsubscribe rates are so low, it's ridiculous because it takes too much time for someone to unsubscribe. But now we've already started to see Apple. What they've done, they've started to give everyone dummy email accounts. So when you log onto an app, it's not even your own email. So you know, if I don't want to, if I want to stop emails, I can just go to a list and be like, whoop, you're done. No more ever, right? It's a whole new world where consumers will own their data and we have to be respectful of it. Recourse is coming. This is really very, very interesting because you look at the battle that's going on between Apple and Facebook with IDFA and iOS 14 um, Mm -hmm. coming out, where effectively you have to opt in and Facebook is wetting themselves with panic because this is going to make all of that third-party data completely out of their reach. And uh, I mean, at the moment, uh, let's face it, it's not exactly the most effective form of marketing. 98.81% of all adverts served up on Facebook get one click or less. Now, that's a shed load of ads. And even that data, which the, um, you know, everyone's saying how terrible it is that Facebook uh, just steals this data or lifts this data, let's use that word, and that's being taken away from them. Now, they're already hideously ineffective. Now that you're taking that away from them, that's going to be a huge problem. And you're seeing Facebook try and challenge Apple in the courts. So I'm really looking forward to that. And then we look at Shoshana, and I can't remember her surname, surveillance capitalism. And there's this whole movement against all of that. So it is absolutely about first-party data and Mm -hmm. permission. Yeah, and also, Marcus, we need to put this. If we're looking at future, you know, we would all be asking the question of, well, how far away is this possible future? There's two things. One is the move you just mentioned of Apple and Facebook. If Apple is able to do that, that starts to open the doors for an actual digital wallet and privacy in this framework. And then two is vaccines. You know, the world has a global problem. What we're about to see is very likely is a digital wallet, which allows you to have a blockchain vaccine so you can show when you go to different countries that I actually have this vaccine. That's a theoretical possibility in the future, but here's what happens if it happens. Now everyone has a digital wallet, right? People now are okay with this. They understand I can have things, I can share things, I can use this. So the first step is to get that in people's hands. The second step is to start using it in new ways. So we're one step away um, from seeing this as reality. Unless they're from Arkansas. Um, but that's another question. Um, but again, what we're already seeing this because I work with a couple of companies that specifically only use first-party data. So I work with one in the sales enablement space. I work with another one in the marketing side, helping uh, brands uh, identify why buyers don't buy. I work with another that operates around um, first-party financial data. And Mm -hmm. all of this is really powerful because it's opt-in, it's all GDPR compliant, IDFA compliant. And uh, the net result of that is these companies are on the cusp of massive growth. And if you're hanging on to the old ways, chances are your growth will slow. You're probably going to find that you're throwing even more money, uh, good money after bad. And if you're lucky, you won't get sued. So that there's a whole uh, sea change uh, in the way people are using data. If you are not adapting and you're not 
ensuring that you're getting that personal engagement, that personal experience, and you're not being absolutely authentic in uh, your approach, your communication, your voice, then pretty much you're dead in the water. And I'm seeing this particularly in the B2B space, interestingly enough, because I only work B2B. And I'm seeing so many organizations pulling their hair out, trying to grow. You know, they're trying to grow their EBITDA by 5, 10, 15%. And they're not. Uh, they're just throwing more money at digital marketing. Um, they're throwing more money at the old ways. And they're not going to make that progress. And that's going to be really interesting when the investor community, so VC and private equity, gotten on. Because at some point, they'll be saying to their investees, why the hell are you spending all this money? We're going to pull the plug. And they're not averse to killing companies just because it's, they're not showing the growth that they need. So I, I think uh, from point of survival, you have to adapt. What are your thoughts? Yeah. thousand percent. So I mean, if we talk about these things, and it's like, okay, like B2B with methodology, uh, new ways of thinking, new ways of marketing, what are some examples in B2B? Well, and you talk about first party, let's go into some like deep, really cool examples. Number one is there's user-generated content. This is just like the duh of all things. You can just work with your marketplace to help create the content that you need. So if we go back to that example of Trailhead, do you know what people are doing? Do you know how many people have changed their actual LinkedIn job title to represent the status inside the community? Go, go into LinkedIn and search Salesforce Ranger and just see how many thousands of people have actually changed that. Each time someone gets a badge, they go on and they post that to LinkedIn that puts our brand out there with someone else, right? The context is now it's coming from someone else. They then start a conversation with other people in the marketplace. We're not even a part of it. We didn't spark it. We didn't do anything. We just helped facilitate it, right? So those are the ideas of one of user-generated content in B2B. Two is thinking about how do you then get into the C-suite, right? One of the big problems that everybody has, and Marcus, this is something you, me, and Karen talked about last time, is that when everybody is currently focused on going into the C-suite, because now budgets are constrained, we have to go higher up in the food chain to get a decision made. The question is, well, how do we do that? One of the big trends that we've been watching for a long time in B2B is the evolution of a new marketing method of innovation consulting. What we're watching is the innovation world is being drained and all those innovation consultants are being bought by large corporations. And now the go-to-marketing method are SICs, EBCs, innovation consulting workshops, where rather than a company paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to innovation consultants to help them innovate new products, you have vendors who are bringing these innovation consultants in free of charge and saying, let's help you innovate. Oh, and by the way, in that future, here's how we can help you as well. And that's a whole new method breaking into companies in radically new ways. Once again, it's a collaborative with method that's focused on the executive engagement that breaks in and builds trust. It's not advertising. It's not any of those traditional methodologies. Totally radically cool new stuff. Very interesting. So if we then start looking around purpose, because again, mm -hmm. I think one of the areas that certainly millennial and Gen Z employees are looking for is they want to work with companies that have a purpose. Yeah. And I think my fusty old generation is starting to move down that road as well. But uh, companies with a purpose, salespeople with a purpose, in my experience, inevitably outsell companies without one. They attract sure. better talent. They retain better talent. People come to them because they feel that they're working for something more than just the mighty dollar. So they're willing to pitch in more. You get more discretionary effort. 
And mm-hmm. if you've got highly engaged employees, then on average, they will deliver up to 430% higher profit per employee. This is not soft and fluffy stuff. I've heard people say, we're not running a bloody holiday camp. What do you mean, you know, employee engagement? So this stuff really matters and it affects yeah. the top and bottom line. It drives the valuation of a business. So yeah. why is it still that there are so many people in the investor community and of uh, a certain age who are still hanging on to that old baggage, which is total shit? Yeah, so this is a phenomenal question. So I actually did research on this. So ask the question to a couple thousand CMOs, marketing professionals, of why don't you do purpose-driven initiatives? And here are the top three reasons of why people don't do these things, right? All the data you shared and thousands of other lines of data are all obvious. It's like climate change, right? Why are people still denying this is the future? Here's why. Number one, they don't know how to connect their product to a purpose. Number two, they're afraid of alienating part of their audience if they align with a purpose that is not part of their other part of the audience. And number three is they just don't have executive approval to do it. So here's what all this means to me, is when people hear the word purpose, they hear the word social justice. And that's a part of purpose that can be purpose, but that is not what we mean. If you really want a good definition of purpose, here's what you need to think about. Purpose allows a brand or a business to have a conversation with the marketplace past their product. That's it. It's a conversation you're having with people that's not about the thing that you make. It's about some other connection between you and them. That's all purpose is. And when you start to look at through this lens, you see a totally different possible future. You're not worried about alienating people. You're not worried about, do we need to be jumping on the social justice bandwagon? Do we need to worry about, you know, potential fallback like Pepsi had, which was just a horrible campaign, right? And that's the, that's the difference. That's all it takes. And when you start to then go down that path, it opens up radically new doors. Because once again, the question then becomes, how do we sustain a relationship with our market? And if you use purpose, you can have a conversation about things that are past your product. Because the reality is, your product only has a very small fraction of a person's time in life. If you want to enjoy a larger share of their time, you need to go past the product and talk about something that's a larger part of their life. So that then effectively, I think, takes us neatly into moving away from the campaign-orientated type of approach to marketing to mapping the customer journey and identifying the triggers along the way. So talk to me about that. Going back to what we know about customer journey, right? There is a journey. We need to be along it. So here's a a couple problems from a traditional thought. Traditional thought is if we have PR and we own this market conversation, then when people go to make a decision, we'll be top of mind. Once again, why is this new environment so critically important to understand? Because there's no such thing as top of mind anymore, Marcus. How many telephone numbers do you remember? My own and my wife's. That's two, right? Most people remember one or two tops. The point is, we don't have to remember anything anymore because we have a thing that is better at memory. We have a digital device and we offload our memory to digital devices with instant recall and accuracy that's far surpassed what we could do in our brain. So the problem that we need to think about is that we no longer remember things in the way that we used to. We make decisions in different ways. So yes, you may own the conversation from a metric such as, you know, how many times are people talking about this in the marketplace? But the question you need to ask is, does that translate into the buyer's journey? And the answer is no. Because if I'm a buyer and I'm asking a question and I get an instant trusted answer, that supersedes any major conversation that's happening in the marketplace. So share of voice and share of conversation is not the same as share of journey. 
You must own share of journey if you want to own that. And the only way to own share of journey is to know those moments and know what conversations you need to be a part of in those moments and then find contextual ways to be a part of those things. And those are the triggers, right? Because in the book, I talk about some really fun examples, right? But the whole point is, is if you don't understand where those things are happening and you don't understand how to be a part of those in the natural context of the modern environment, you're just not going to be there and someone else is going to be there and that's going to own the conversation and move the ball forward. You can't get away from the neuroscience and you can't get away from 300 million years of evolutionary hardwiring. We are creatures of emotion and story. And what we remember is how we felt at those moments and we remember the stories related to them. And one of the things that I spend a huge amount of my time doing with my clients is really driving home that message. Because more often than not, they're used to talking about the product. It's the, it's the, uh, the low road. It's the easy fallback. But no one buys product. They buy the outcome. And what they want to be able to do is see that you help and you work with people like us, that you understand the problems, the challenges that we're facing. And also, you understand how to deliver the outcomes that we want, because people pay for outcomes. One of my favorite books and one of my favorite uh, thinkers and sales is a guy called Bob Master. And Bob talks about how people rent outcomes because you've got people who are highly engaged with massive utilization, massive consumption, who are loyal customers, but they'll drop, they'll move if it's no longer contextually relevant and if it's no longer uh, delivering the outcomes that they want. And this then points back to your earlier point, which is critical, that you need to be listening to the customer. You've got to be co-developing your products with your customer. And that, I think, is the fundamental function of marketing nowadays. It's not good enough that you produce the better mousetrap. No, and you're right. And and you said co-developing the product. It's co-developing everything. That's the other big thing that I want people to realize is your future is working with your marketplace in every moment. Because that's the thing, you can't just force messages in. When we've talked about all the, the you know, the, the end uh, efficiencies of forced messaging, but then you flip this and let's just play this really quickly, Marcus, because here's a problem that marketers think about. When they hear the word personal, they think that this means how can I take uh, and personalize a moment? How can I put the right content in there? How can I put the right person's name in there? Like, how do I personalize this? And that's the apex, right? Which is one-to-one. Now, let's be clear. That was a theory written in 1993 by Don Peppers and Martha Rogers. That is the idea of this future of one-to-one. But we are in a different media environment now than we were in 1993. And people must realize personal is no longer how long can you, how well can you personalize something? It's how personal can you deliver it? Because if we go back to the context of the modern media environment, humans have control, individuals have control. So now it's not how personalized can I make this content? It's how personal can I deliver it? And that gets us to a new apex, which is human to human. So we need to work with other humans to deliver those messages because that then is the context. Those are the things they trust. And to your point, that's us working with them to help solve these problems in all key moments along the customer journey. So once you identify where all those places are, then you need to work with people to then be in those. So working with those markets and working with those moments. So co-creating everything. This then comes back to your friend and mine, Mark Schaefer. And he talks about how you have to think as the customer, not about them. Mm -hmm. And that requires a completely different approach. It also means that you have to be vulnerable enough 
to go out there and listen to what they're saying. And one of the things I loved about your research is go and speak to unhappy customers, lapsed customers, customers who fired you. And your product development cycle increases its speed by 600% on average. Now, that's a phenomenal statistic, but so many salespeople, so many marketers, so many companies will avoid speaking to people because they don't want to have the difficult conversations. And I think this requires a shift in value sets as well. You need to be rigorously authentic. You need to surrender the outcome. You need to be willing to express yourself, but also you need to have the humility to recognize that your customers are your best teachers. Um, and just because you've produced a, an elegantly solution to a problem that doesn't exist doesn't make it something that will sell. This is where Bob Mester, you know, 5,000 products to his name. I mean, that's a pretty impressive portfolio. But he had to learn how to speak to customers so that he produced products that customers would buy. Let's make this really tactical because here's the thing that really pisses me off. Surveys. Have you ever woken up or you ever finished a survey and like, damn, that was the best experience I've ever had? Says no one ever. I've got a friend. I write about this in the book. <laughs> He's a little quirky. <laughs> and Michael, this one's for you, brother. But he, we were on a ski trip and he's like, we were talking about all these topics. And he goes, you know, I've started collecting all the surveys. He's a UX researcher. And he started collecting all the surveys that people send him. He had just had a kid. So in the United States, healthcare is a lot different having a kid in the United States can be quite expensive. So this kid just dropped thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars at a hospital to have a child. The hospital mails him a Scantron. So I don't know if you're familiar with everyone's Scantron. Those are the big bubble sheets that we would take test on, bubble in A with a pencil, bubble in B with a pencil. There's a seven-page Scantron survey, front and back with questions. After he had just spent thousands and thousands of dollars asking him about how good his experience was, do you think he filled that survey out? No. So here's the problem we all have. People want to scale everything. And by scaling things, you miss the point you're removing the humanity. Number one, if you create an experience, you must follow up with people and you must talk to them. You can't do a survey because you can't get the real context of what they're saying in a survey. You need to ask them questions. That's your job as a marketer, dig in deeper. And the problem is most people don't know how to do this, but it's really simple. You ask three questions. Yes. What got you to this moment? What were you doing that brought you to this moment? That's going to tell you where on the customer journey they are. Are you in the right place? Next is, did this experience meet your expectations? People are going to have expectations. Are you meeting them or not? That's a simple question. And then the third is, have you seen better? Which is just going to simply tell you, you may not have done the best thing. You may have tried the best. And here's something that you may not have thought of. And here's what works better. It's three simple questions. And that's it. Five-minute conversation, you're done. Do it with six people, and that's all you need for an experience to know if you're on par and how to get better. But it's really simple, but people just don't do it. They rely on surveys and large-scale market research. I love those three questions, especially the last one. It invites criticism. It invites, and it's a question that puts you in the position of vulnerability and humility. And I think that's sadly lacking in so many organizations. They treat the customer as if they have a right to sell to them. And all the other extreme, which is they behave like a commodity. And if you're not listening to your customers, one of my favorite examples is this company, Authentics. They are run by Amy Brown. And they listen to about 10 billion calls a year coming through their call centers. So they outsource and they do AI analytics on the unvarnished raw conversations that customers are having 
within the US health system. So if they're doing 10 billion, that gives you an indication of just how much is probably going wrong because the number of times people have to speak to them, that's a lot of conversations. So often, um, the experience that people are having is good, but it's lost. Other times, it's terrible, and no one knows about it. And the latent cost of that is that you end up losing customers because they don't feel valued. I can't remember, this must be 10, 15 years ago, but over 88%, I think it was 88% of customers leave a vendor because they no longer feel appreciated. And those three questions demonstrate that you actually appreciate them. And that's where the humanity is. And that's hideously lacking. We're coming to the top of the hour, sadly. I could talk to you for hours. I want to touch on one other thing before we wrap up, which is this process of automation, lead funnels. Because I think you've already pointed to the fact that uh, surveys effectively dehumanize the whole process and generally are either ignored, uh, pissed people off, or worse, just people giving an opinion doesn't give you any indication of intent. But automation, I see many organizations putting together these very sophisticated lead funnels. They have this technology spaghetti of 15 different applications. And then they go out and they spam the universe. They're probably getting blocked by Google's algorithm on their first pass anyway. What's your advice to people who are doing that sort of thing in terms of, again, humanizing the outreach and the follow-up and the communication? Oh man, we could talk an hour on this topic by itself. Uh, so let's just do this really quickly um, for time and for everyone. So going back, so just so everyone remembers, I was one of the pioneers in the marketing automation space, wrote Marketing Automation for Dummies, the first practical guide for this space. So I've worked with hundreds, if not thousands of companies to implement these ideas and practices. Here's the number one flaw that everyone has is they buy marketing automation software, which is a new thing, right? And then they apply old ideas to it and say, listen, all I need to do is automate the old things I did. They're not able to creatively think about new ideas. They just see a new thing and say, let me take the old thing that I know and force it into this, which is natural human behavior, right? Now, here's the problem. is They're not seeing a new world of new possibilities. And they do exactly what you say. They sit in a room, they diagram this massive campaign. They then take three months to build it. They then force people into this campaign. What they really should do is take a step back and say, let's build this in small pieces because we have time on our side, right? These are timed out campaigns. So build them in small chunks, then follow up with people, see how it worked, and then build them over time as you grow. That's going to save you time. That's going to allow you to have better results. And that's also going to keep you from thinking about this as a giant spam, automated spam cannon. Automation is a part of the future. It's an easy way that we can create better experiences. It's an easy way that we can guide people to better outcomes. But it's only when you do it with a humanity and looking through the lens of the customer, not, I want to get them here quickly. How can I automate that process? That's the wrong way. Um, so just think about how we do it differently. This, again, points to another fundamental value that I think has, it's either never been there or has been lost, which is selfish marketing, selfish selling. Customers buy for their reasons, not your reasons. They don't care how shiny your product is. They care. I'm minded of an, a story I've uh, often told of um, a young salesperson working their Saturday uh, job at an electronics store. And a little old lady comes in and asks, um, do you sell heaters? And she says, I, th I think they're over here, madam. It's my first day. 
and he takes her through the scenic route, eventually gets to the heater. And he starts to ask a load of questions about how she's going to use it, the type of room, how warm or cold it is, how drafty, the kind of windows, whether they keep the door shut or they have a, you know, whatever. And she says, well, you know, gives all the answers. And he says, well, I'm not sure. Let me have a look in the box. So he opens the box up, looks at the instructions, says, all right, this one will do the trick. Okay. So off she goes and um, uh, pays for it. Three weeks later, a friend of hers comes in after having had such a great experience. Now, the problem is the boss has sent this salesperson on the uh, Philips and GE training course. And so now they learn all about the product and the product knowledge. And so the little old lady uh, friend uh, comes in and says, do you sell heaters? Heaters, madam? Well, I can show you heaters and takes us straight there. And then he starts talking about all the different products and the wattages and the outages and all this kind of stuff. And she looks at him and says, you know, son, the only thing I care about is will it keep an old lady warm? And I think that's been missed. When I'm working with my salespeople, I'm constantly telling them, you know, you have to focus on their outcome. Where are they? How do they get there? Where do they want to get to? Because they want to make the best investment for the future. They want to add value to their business. They want to get the outcome. But it's so often missed. And it's being driven by the church of finance, driving the numbers, focusing. And, and most of these businesses are privately owned. You know, if you look at the number of businesses that are privately owned versus publicly listed, most of them are privately owned, even if they're owned by private equity or venture capital. They have no reason to work on quarterly sales reporting. Yeah, it's useful to know where you are. But actually, you can stop trying to sell transactionally and you can start prospecting and marketing for customers who are going to be your customer in 15 years' time instead of trying to make your number to keep your rent paid. And this, I think, is one of the most important things that people, I hope, will take away from today. Stop trying to sell selfishly. Stop trying to market selfishly. No one buys your product and no one ever will. They don't care. That's like showing photos of you pissed in a pool on holiday snaps and then trying to wonder why, uh, you know, after the 18th photograph, people are glazing over. So, Matthew, this has been fantastic. I'd love to have you back. My question to you is this, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? What am I wrestling with at the moment? The same stuff everyone else is. I mean, I look at the future. So it's trying to figure out, you know, what does tomorrow look like? How are these big changes in our world currently going to impact consumer behavior? What are we going to be looking at? How do we meet that new consumer? What are they going to desire? Um, so those are all the big things that keep me up at night, which is fun because I love thinking about them. You are definitely one of my favorite futurists. So I'm looking forward to finding out what your thoughts are on that. Tell me this, you've got a golden ticket and you can go back and advise the idiot Matt, age 23. What one choice bit of advice would you give him that you know he would have ignored, but he would have found valuable if he'd applied it? There's a skill that, I'm, I'm, that I love that I wish I would have jumped into earlier, which is facilitation technique. Just the idea of learning how to put on workshops and really how to, to collaborate and how to work together with groups and to get to answers better. I think if, if I would have learned that earlier in my career, I'd have done so many different things and done them differently and had better outcomes. Um, but once again, it's a with method. I just would have learned this idea of with, not on sooner in my career. That's a fair one. Okay. So how can people get hold of you? Yeah. So I'm on Twitter. It's just M Sweezy on Twitter or I'm on LinkedIn. You can follow me on LinkedIn. 
those are the two best places. And that's usually where I publish content and publish my thoughts. And then I'm on Medium. and But I'll put all those links in those two social channels. Excellent. Matt Sweezy, thank you. Hey, thanks, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you're the owner of a technology company and your goal is to grow your business and achieve real sustainable hyper growth with highly engaged and highly productive employees and clients who stick with you year after year after year and bring their wealthy friends, then let's schedule a time for a brief conversation. You can reach me at marcus at laughs-last.com or DM me on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.